Uh, thank you for that as well. Let's uh, just pray and we'll dive into our word this morning. Father, we just, uh, once again, we just are in awe of who you are. God, we're thankful uh, of not just who you are, uh, but God, the way that you've revealed yourself to us. And uh, God, we just thank you that you continue to reveal yourself to us day by day. Uh, But God, primarily, you reveal yourself to us through your word. And so God, thank you for the gift of your word that allows us to to open it and to study and to know you and uh, just to be drawn into deeper relationship with you. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what a good weekend, amen? Uh, it's, it's been really nice. I hope some of you were able to get outside yesterday and maybe enjoy some weather. Some of you get out some yesterday, anybody? Nope, you all stayed indoors. All right, good for you. It's a nice day. I, I don't know how many more of those days that we're gonna have towards the end of the summer, beginning of the fall, you know, really be able to enjoy some of these weekends. Uh, some, some families like to go out. You, you go to these like pumpkin farms. Anybody do that? You know, and you walk around and you do all these, these like crazy things that seem really odd, but somehow it's become like normal in the fall. And uh, there's these pumpkin farms all over the place, really, that have just popped up. I don't know uh, how many there are exactly like in the Chicagoland area, but they're, they're all over the place, right? And it's a fun thing to do, especially if you have kids, you know, you go there and they've got pumpkins, but they've got all kinds of other things too, corn mazes and um, you know, I, I don't know, like things where you like sift through sand to find gems and um, there's pigs and goats running around that you can feed and um, all kinds of things. But our, our family enjoys doing those things from time to time. And again, there's, there's a whole bunch of them around here. Uh, there's this one that we like to go to. We've been to a couple times called Richardson Farm. It's up in Spring Grove. And uh, they claim to have the world's largest corn maze. So I don't know how you evaluate that, but like it's 20 some acres and I think it's like nine or 10 miles of trails. And so that's if you don't get lost. If you get lost, it's like 20 miles. So, um, but it's pretty crazy. And they, you know, if you've been to these things before, they theme them out. So I'll show you, this is a picture of um, their theme for this year. Um, but that's the corn maze and that's just the corn maze. They have a bunch of other acreage um, this year is a James Bond theme, so I don't know if there's any James Bond fans here, um, but <clears throat> you know you run around in there for a while until you're crazy, and then you try to get out, and it's a lot of fun. But there's there's a bunch of different things to do. There's like zorbing now. You get in a big bubble ball, and they roll you down a hill. Like, I mean, I think in the past you'd get in trouble for doing something like that to a kid, but like now it's encouraged, and you pay for it. So, uh, <laughs> but they have you know paintball and all kinds of things and like the apple cider donuts anybody like those those are that's like my favorite thing right? is go do all that kind of stuff but there's you know it's it's richardson farm right is established back in like 1830s um but it's very different than what it was now you know one of the interesting things that they have there is pig racing i don't know if you've ever been to pig racing uh but this is a sight to behold um but they train these pigs to run around in a circle and all, you know, all these people, these people like me, they get, gathered around to watch this pig racing. But it was interesting to me because before the pig racing, they were talking about a little bit of the history of the farm. So they were talking about how it was established in you know, the 1830s that their family came over and now it's like you know, fifth, sixth, seventh generation or something like that that's running this farm. And they did a bunch of different things. They did corn and they did beans and they did 
pigs for a while, and they did Christmas trees for a while, and some other things like that. But then at a certain point, they decided that they were going to basically sell the pigs when they were doing that, and they were going to sell off the pigs and basically start this corn maze and shift to something that's a little bit different. And actually, what they did is become a bit of a recent phenomenon. So back in the 1990s, the New York Times reported a growing trend of owners of small farms in America who began to reduce their wholesale farming to kind of just a mere sideline and instead started using their property for another purpose, and they called it entertainment farming. That's what it's called now. When you go to these farms, these pumpkin patch things, it's entertainment farming. Other terms for this new uh, way to make a living on the farm is called agritainment or agritourism. Uh, so entertainment farms attract paying customers to their property uh, with country bands and corn mazes and petting corrals and tricycle courses and, and all kinds of stuff. And so, you know, good old city folk, I guess that's me, uh, city folk are eager to feel this uh, life on the farm. And so they come and they pay for admission and food and amusement activities. And it's become like a whole industry. There was one farmer uh, based out of, in Arizona uh, that said that he was making fifteen dollars to $20,000 a weekend on a good weekend. And another report uh, that was a little bit later in 2019 said that in the United States, there are about 50,000 of these entertainment farms, 50,000 of them. I, I guess it feels like there's that just around here, so I guess that makes sense. But, you know, there's a lot of them, and together, it brings in over $1 billion in annual revenue. Can you believe that? So, like, this is a thing that people are doing, this entertainment farm, and I'm part of it. Like, I'm gladly, like, go be a part of that once a year. It's a lot of fun. But here, here's sort of the point, and maybe the question that I'd like to raise for us this morning, is I think sometimes, or, or at least I'd like to maybe suggest that sometimes, as Christians, as a church, we can resemble an entertainment farmer. For whatever reason... We are diverted from the central purpose of our lives, which is to produce a crop. And yet, there are many people, I think, in some churches that have set aside the process and the emphasis and the work of producing a crop, and we've become entertainment farmers. Fruitfulness is God's will for every Christian and for every church. And it's what we're about. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 15. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. There's also a note outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along, and that's helpful. Uh, you're welcome to do that. But I want to sort of start our time by sort of thinking about the end, which is the application. And I want to just ask some questions to sort of th see what you think. The first is this, is that there's this illustration that Jesus is going to use about the vine and the branches. And the vine represents Jesus Christ, and the branches represent those who have trusted Christ as their personal Savior, those that are by faith in the family of God. And so here's my question, is are you attached to the vine? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you been unified with Christ 
through faith on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because that really is the starting point of this. But it's not the ending point. The second question is this, is are you abiding in Christ? Because it's not just about being attached, but it's about fellowship. It's about abiding in Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Let me ask you another question. Is not just are you abiding in Christ, but is your life bearing fruit? Is the abiding nature of your relationship with Christ bringing about a fruitfulness that is pleasing to God? And then lastly, are you experiencing full and lasting joy? I want to stop and think about that for a second. Are you experiencing full and lasting joy? Because I think a lot of times we start with the end, that we want full and lasting joy. We pursue things in our lives that we think are going to give us full and lasting joy. Life gets really hard and we can become very down because we're not experiencing full and lasting joy in our lives. But instead of thinking about where lasting joy originates, we just kind of tend to move to the next thing. And we become entertainment farmers and we think that if we just put up a zip line or if we go pick out pumpkins or throw pumpkins off a tower or something crazy like that, right, that somehow that this is going to bring us joy that is lasting. And we've missed it. We've missed that joy comes out of bearing fruit. And bearing fruit comes out of abiding with Christ. And abiding with Christ comes out of a union with Christ, being attached to the vine. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. This is a profile, in some sense, of a mature Christian. It is the life of deep faith. Now, let me state right up front um, that I'm not preaching this message because I have it figured out or that because I am somehow a mature Christian. I have so far to go. And the older I get and the more I walk with Christ, the more I realize how far I yet have to go. And so this is not a here's what you should be doing because this is what I'm doing. This is a, hey, we are in this together. We are communing with Christ, opening his word, and in this, there is a challenge from God's word, from the mouth of Jesus Christ, to bear fruit in our lives. And I, like you, am trying through the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk with Christ in a way that honors him so that my life will bear fruit. But I have no, by no means arrived or figured it out. And so together, let's just explore this and see what God's word says and may he apply it to each of our lives in a way that is full of grace and mercy. I love Augustine in much of what he wrote. One of the things that he wrote was this. He said, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek him is the greatest adventure. To find him is the greatest human achievement. And I think that that's so good. And that's really what Abiding in Christ is all about. It's about falling in love with God. It's about seeking him and finding him so that our lives may experience full and lasting joy. And so what we have here in John chapter 15 at the beginning is we have a teaching from Jesus where he uses an illustration to teach a principle of abiding fellowship. In some sense, you might say it's the journey from root 
to fruit, being rooted in Christ to bearing fruit in our lives. And he's going to talk about this idea of abiding in Christ. The Greek word translated abide in this passage can be translated remain or stay or persevere or continue. But there really is no one English word that is adequate to convey the richness of what Jesus says here in John chapter 15. Abide is used in this passage to describe a continuous, intimate union. It's not just union with Christ, but it is a continuing union, communion together. I love the parallel here as Pastor Paul is teaching out of 1 John and we're looking at John at the same time, same author, and looking at how John talks and hears, he's being taught this by Jesus in John chapter 15, and then he unpacks it, if you will, in 1 John a little bit more. But listen to what 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, and then I'm going to jump to 27 and 28 says. It says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Isn't that great? So our abiding fellowship is ultimately what gives us confidence in our walk with Christ. We can have confidence of who we are and where we're going and what God is going to accomplish, our purpose and our plan in our lives based on the abiding fellowship of Christ. So listen, the flip of that is if I'm not abiding with Christ, I should not have confidence about the outcome. I should be concerned about the outcome because that means that I'm living and acting and orchestrating things according to my own ways and my own ideas, and my own desires, and my own heart, which is wicked, which is godless, which is doomed. And so it is this abiding relationship that brings me confidence. And so this morning, we want to look at this illustration, and I want to share with you five principles of abiding with Christ. The first is the most important. The first one is that abiding with Christ begins with our identity being rooted in him. Our identity being rooted in Jesus Christ. John chapter 15, verse 1, start there. It says, I am the true vine. Who is speaking? Jesus is speaking. He's speaking specifically to his 11 disciples. You remember that Judas at this point is already gone. He is left and he is on his way to eventually betray Jesus. And so Jesus is speaking to his 11 disciples. I want to make a note about this because this is important. Jesus is not talking to unbelievers. He is not talking to a mixed crowd here of other people who may or may not believe. He is talking specifically to the 11 disciples, to 11 people who believe him, who are unified with him under the belief, the faith, that Jesus is the promised Messiah who has come into the world. And so Jesus speaking here, he says, I am the true vine, 
and my father is the vine dresser. Jesus says, I am the true vine. There are no substitutes. There are no additions. It is Jesus who is the vine. He is the source of life. He is the source of all life, all eternal life. He is the source of goodness. He is the source of love. He is the source of hope. He is the source of joy. Jesus is the vine. It's not Jesus and or Jesus or. It's just simply Jesus. He is the vine. Now he's, I think, saying this partly to say, obviously, that the connection, the source of point of life here is him. But also it is to bring clarity. Why? Because the vine and the branches is an illustration that is used in other places in the scripture. And so the vine and the branch is a common uh, farming, agricultural thing that people would have understood. And so it was often used to, to relay principles, to illustrate different principles that were trying to be taught. And so we see different language about vine and branches at different points in scripture. And they are different They are meant for different groups and meant to emphasize different points and different purposes. So here we see that Jesus is saying that he is the vine. Let me share with you just briefly this. There is a vine that is the past vine. And that is referring specifically to the nation of Israel. So in Psalm chapter 80, in Jeremiah chapter 2, in Ezekiel chapter 19, Hosea chapter 10... Isaiah chapter 5, we have all these passages where Israel is referred to as the past vine. God placed Israel into Canaan and gave the nation both blessing and benefit. It was through Israel that God was going to bring about life. And it was through Israel that he was going to not only reveal himself, but also bring into the world the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would save the world from their sin. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 4 says, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? See, Israel as a nation had everything it needed to succeed, but it produced wild grapes. Instead of justice, it produced oppression. Instead of righteousness, it produced unrighteousness. In fact, in Matthew chapter 21, we see Jesus talking about this, and it says that God's own son came to the vineyard, and they cast him out, and they killed him. Israel betrayed and killed Jesus himself, the son of God. That's the past vine. But there is also a future vine. Uh, We see this in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. It is the Gentile system that was ripe for God's judgment. And in this, we see that believers are branches in the vine of heaven, while unbelievers are branches in the vine of the earth. And the vine of the earth will be cut down and destroyed when Jesus Christ returns. It is an aspect of judgment. That's what the future vine is referring to. But when Jesus teaches here in John chapter 15, he's not referring to Israel the past vine, he's not talking about God's judgment, the future vine. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the present vine, which is Jesus. He is the true vine. And we see this unpacked in John chapter 15 here. Again, let me repeat this. It is about our union with the true vine. Our union with Christ is a loving union. 
so that we can bear fruit. It is a loving union so that we can enjoy him. Sorry, a living union, a loving union so that we may enjoy him and a lasting union so that we need not be afraid, so that we can have confidence in our lives. And so Jesus is the vine. Well, let's go to the second part then, is that abiding with Christ acknowledges the authority of the Father. It acknowledges the authority of the Father. Again, still in verse 1, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. The Father is the one who is overseeing these things. It is the will of the Father that's being carried out. He's the one that is in charge of the care of the vine. He's the one that sent or established the vine. We see a little bit of this language in Matthew chapter 28, a familiar passage, when we think about the purpose and calling of our life that is the Great Commission. Jesus said, and Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the authority of the Father. The vine dresser has the authority of, over life, the authority over our lives. And he has given us his life through the vine, which is Jesus Christ. So what does this authority look like? Well, in the context of the vine dresser, right? In the context of the, 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 this illustration of the vine and the branches, we can see different aspects. We'll see his, his protective care. Right? His eye is upon us, and his hand tends to the weakest branch and the most tender shoot. Part of the role of the authority of the Father is that he protects. He protects us. It doesn't mean that we don't face struggles or that we don't face problems, but it means that he has an eye on our lives, and he is protecting. But also, there is his watchfulness. Sorry, I'm a little bit behind here. But there, he, there is a watchfulness, right? So not only is he protecting, but there is nothing that escapes his eye. Just as the gardener notes carefully the condition of each brine, branch of the vine, watering and training and pruning all occasions on, on all the occasions that arise. So the divine vine dresser is constantly occupied with the need and the welfare of those who are joined with Christ, right? And so God is protecting and he is watching. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that good to know that God is protecting and he is watching over your, and my, your life and mine? But then there is also that he is faithful. The vine dresser is faithful. No branch is allowed to run to waste. God is faithful to fulfill the work that he has begun in you. There are difficulties and there are barriers and there are hardships and there are seasons of life where maybe things can feel like they've come to a stop and they've come to a halt a little bit. But keep in mind that if you're in that season where you feel like, you know what, it doesn't feel like I'm abiding in Christ. It doesn't feel like I'm producing fruit. It doesn't feel like anything good is happening in my life. Just keep in mind that God has his eye on you and that he will be faithful to bring it to completion. And it may feel in the moment 
like God is gone, maybe, or that nothing good is happening. But keep in mind that God is actively at work, and he will do the work to bring about what his faithfulness demands because he also is a God who prunes. And so what does this pruning look like? Well, there's two aspects to this, right? When somebody is pruning, there's dead wood that's unproductive, that's useless, that gets cut off and put aside, but then there's also living tissue. And that's really illustrative of our own lives, right? Sometimes we just have stuff in our lives that is bringing deadness into our lives. It is sin, it is disease, and it will destroy us. And part of the work of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit is to cut it out and to get rid of it so that we can grow in the way that God has called us and desired for us to. But it's not just getting rid of the dead that is sin, but it is also the cutting of living tissue. That sometimes God allows things to happen in our lives that cut, that hurt, that bleed spiritually. And when those things happen, God has a purpose and a plan. And that the goal of those things, the purpose of those things, is to peel things back so that we can be ready for a ripe harvest in our lives. And so that leads us to the third point, the third principle about abiding in Christ. That abiding with Christ expresses the closeness of the relationship. Look at verses two through six now. It says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. There is this closeness of relationship that comes through abiding. And so there's two parts to this. One is what we talked about during communion, right? It is union and communion. It is that we are designed to commune, to have fellowship, that it doesn't just stop with salvation. It just doesn't stop with knowing Christ and having a relationship with him. But it's about living in Christ and in the power of the spirit so that we can bear fruit in our lives. And so it is simply to say this, union and communion is to continue in the joyful recognition of the value of his perfect sacrifice and the efficiency of his precious blood. Union and communion is to maintain a spirit and attitude of dependency on Christ. Union and communion is to draw from his fullness. And so as believers, as a church, right, this is what it would be about. For us to be abiding with Christ, it means that we would be joyful and reflective about the gospel, about his salvation given to us through his son, and that we would have an attitude of dependency or trust on him, right? And that through that, we would experience the fullness of God in our lives, and that we would draw on that in our day-to-day. 
But that can be a challenge. And so there is this other part to it. And that is that we have to be careful that as believers, that we avoid the wasted life. Do you believe that a Christian's life can be wasted? I wonder what you think of that. You know, in some sense, you might think, well, if I'm a believer and I'm going, I know my salvation is in Christ, I'm going to be in heaven. How is that a waste? Because God has greater things. Because God's work and purpose in your life is bigger than just your eternal destiny. God has even more for us. Look at these two verses here, verse 2 and verse 6, that sort of bookend this little section here. You know, what happens than to the believer who bears no fruit. In verse 2, it says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So there's a Greek word here, arrow, that means to take away, or it can be translated to lift up. Right? And so there are some people who translate this to take away, and they're thinking about it in terms of judgment, which is not really what this passage is about. And they will sort of associate this to mean that a believer can lose his or her salvation. That the believer who, uh, you know, is not producing fruit somehow loses their salvation and is cast away. There are others who interpret it to mean to lift up. It's to believe that these branches get special attention from the vine dresser so that they will bear fruit in the future. And so here's the thing is that the vine dressers in this day and age would have had a common practice of lifting up the vine. It it would have been pruning it. It would have been tending to it. It would have been caring for the vine so that it would be able to produce fruit in the the future. Again, the context here, Jesus is not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to the disciples. And and he's talking about this in in a way that is better really understood as being lifted up. It's part of the caring nature of the Father. Jesus gave this teaching in the spring when farmers did what he described in this verse. They they would have been surrounded by this activity as they were hearing this illustration. And a lot of times we want to sort of take verse 2 and take verse 6 and sort of put them together and make them sort of fit. But but really 2 is talking about lifting up, caring for The branches that are not producing fruit. That that God is going to work. That he's going to come alongside those branches. But verse 6 is different. Verse 6 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So again, we have basically four different options of how we can understand this verse. One is that we can understand this verse to mean... That those believers are cut off and they lose their salvation. The problem with that is that you would use this passage, which is actually just an illustration that Jesus is giving, to form a doctrine that would be in conflict with a variety of other teaching in Scripture that shows us that God's gift of eternal life is that. It is eternal. That we receive the gift of eternal life, not on our own basis, but on the goodness and grace of God. And so if it's not according to us that we receive it, how on earth could it be according to us that we would lose it? And there are passages all throughout scripture 
that speak to this. John 3, 16 and 17. John 6, 35 and 40. And John 10, 27 through 29. John unpacks the security of the believer in these passages. So it's unlikely that here we would see the, the message being given that somehow you can lose your salvation. Another option is that maybe these people were just never saved. Maybe they weren't saved to begin with. But again, what is the context here? Who is Jesus speaking to? It's not a mixed crowd. It's certainly not an unbelieving crowd. But these are the believers. These are the 11 disciples. It is unlikely that any of this would relate to those who had never actually been saved. There is a third option, and that is maybe it's referring to sort of a loss of rewards, right? That as Christians, we live our lives and we are storing up treasures in heaven, Scripture tells us, right? And so maybe there's an aspect of this where we lose rewards, which is a thing, right? That if we are not producing fruit, then we are missing out on rewards in our life. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about this. It says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, the judgment seat of Christ, the end time, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built up on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so there is this aspect of rewards, right? And what we do sort of, uh, you know, results in a certain amount of rewards in the future. But I also want us to stop and think about maybe a fourth option here. And the fourth option is what is the purpose of what Jesus is saying here? What happens to these branches? You know, we believe that Jesus' point was that some Christians are as useless to God as branches were to vine growers. The point here is uselessness, not judgment. This passage is not Revelation 14 talking about the vine in terms of future judgment. This passage is talking about the present vine, Jesus Christ. His point is the uselessness or the wastefulness of our lives. And it's an illustration. And so what did the vine dressers do with those branches? Well, they were removed because they were useless. And that's what they did. They took them, they cast them aside, and they burned them. I tend to lean, although I do think that the loss of rewards is maybe an option that could be there, and that could be part of the picture. But let's not overcomplicate the simplicity of this illustration. That God wants us to bear fruit, and that he helps us, he tends to us so that we can bear fruit. But if we don't lean in, if we don't fellowship, if we don't abide with Christ, then we won't produce fruit. And our life will be useless in the sense that it will not fulfill the purpose that God has for us. And I think that it's that simple. You can sort of do your own study and read. There's a lot of different thoughts out there about how to understand verses 2 through 6. But the point is the closeness that we experience our relationship with Christ, the abiding nature that we're called to. And what does that lead to? 
Well, principle number four, abiding with Christ is fellowship that produces fruit. Verses seven through 12. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ah, I mean, that's pretty awesome, right? Think about this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Why, why would it say something like that? Because whatever we ask, if we are abiding with Christ and we're abiding by his words, then whatever we ask is going to be within the will and the plan of God. You want to see and experience answered prayer in your life? Abide with him. Walk with him. Don't just show up and do the church thing. Abide with him because that's where the power in prayer comes from. He goes on, he says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Even Jesus is abiding in the love of the father. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Notice this progression of fruit. It begins with fellowship and prayer. It begins with being, having our hearts aligned with Christ and being in fellowship with him and then being in communion with him through prayer. That we're talking to him, we're listening to him, we're experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit through his word in our lives. And we will experience answered prayer according to his word and according to his will. Listen, I believe that prayer is the prelude for fruit in our lives. If we do self-reflection and we see an absence or a shortage of fruit... Look to the prayer life because prayer is the avenue in which fruit will come. And what is the goal of this? Well, the goal of this is that we want fruit. Why? So that we can look good, so that I can stand up here and tout something in a proud way. No, we want fruit because it is what glorifies the Father. Right? Everything we do is for the purpose of being, bringing glory to the Father. And so here's, here's the encouragement, right? Is that if we want to honor and glorify the Father, we will seek to allow him to produce fruit in our lives. Now, I want to balance this with what can be a legalistic perspective, right? Like, I just need to do more, and then God will be happy with me, and then I'll experience his blessing. And that's not what Jesus is teaching here. But it is to say that when we are abiding with him, his fruit will be an outcome of that, and then Christ will be glorified. The Father will be glorified. But there is a balance when we're thinking about doing versus being. Some believers become fake it Christians who settle for going through the motions of attending church services and helping out a little bit here and there so as not to feel guilty. 
Some believers become oversimplified Christians, boiling the Christian life down to an easy formula, which maybe would differ from person to person. Read your Bible, pray, go to church, and it kind of ends there. Other believers fall into comparative Christianity. You give more than most. You attend more than most. You adopt higher morals than most. And it goes on and on and on. It's like as we compare our lives to somebody else to somehow give value to what we are thinking. But these forms of Christianity are cheap substitutes. Authentic, genuine life change begins with God, not you and I. He is the change agent. Until we recognize that he is the initiator of all true life, we will fall prey to our own futile self-effort. We will fill our calendars with religious activities. We will hang out with religious people and we will read religious books, but we will never truly change. The father breaks the cycle of be good, do good Christianity. Instead, bringing attention to God's initiating work in your life and your awareness and participation in the process. It's not another list of do's and don'ts, a linear list of check boxes to check off for the super motivated. It's not based on surveys or traditions. It is a distillation of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the chief image bearer, the master teacher, and the ultimate example in our lives. And so we have fellowship and prayer. And in and out of that, there is fruit where God, the Father, is glorified. And he is glorified by much fruit, it says. And so what is this fruit? Well, it is fruit found in love. We see this in verses 9 and 10. Love for God, love for others, and love for ourselves. Not the vain love, but a way of looking at ourselves through the lens of how God sees us that our identity and our purpose and our value are found in Christ. So some of us are really good at loving God and loving others, and we think terribly of ourselves. But God wants to give us a perspective, not just of himself and not just of others, but of you. He wants you to see you in light of how he sees you. And you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God loves every part of who you are that was created and designed by him. There is fruit also that is found in joy. We see that in verse 11. It is unusual joyfulness resulting from listening to the Holy Spirit's voice as we believe and apply the word of God. That's when we experience this joy. There is this fruit of love, but then there is this fruit of joy that comes about in our lives. And then lastly, there is a fruit found in peace. Verse 12. It's talking about loving one another. When we're loving one another rightly, then we will have peace. It doesn't mean that we won't have problems it doesn't mean that we won't, you know, we get along or agree with everyone, but it means that we will have peace because of the attitude with which we're loving one another. And so it's interesting here, right, when we think about 
The fruit that we see, what we see laid out here in John 15 is love and joy and peace, right? We don't see church attendance, right? We, we don't see service opportunities on a regular basis. We, we don't see doing good things all the time, right? It's not a checklist. The fruit that's going to come out is not typically what everybody can see. It's what people experience when they interact with you. It's that love. It's that joy. It's that peace. Peace that comes from unconditional and sacrificial love. And so that leads to our last and final principle. Abiding with Christ is the proof and purpose of our spiritual maturity. We'll notice here earlier in the verse it talked about how Jesus said, this is what will prove that you are my disciples. Notice as he goes on here in verses 13 through 16, the proof and the purpose. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the name, whatever you ask the, my father in my name, he may give you, to you. I think this is so good. He, he's talking about the, the proof of this is going to be seen, seen in how we relate to one another. And he ends this section by saying that you should go and you should bear fruit. And again, whatever you ask, he may give it to you. That the evidence of this fruit is the answered prayer in our lives. It's the proof of Christ's love. It's the sacrificial love that he gave us that now we turn and we sacrifice for others. And it's the purpose of Christ's choice. Notice here that branches don't eat fruit. <laughs> others do, right? The purpose of our producing a fruit is so that others may benefit from it. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 21 says, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. And so the fruit in our lives, God does this work. He establishes these things in our lives. He brings about the fruit so that we can prove to be his disciples and so that we can have an influence on other people so that we can be a blessing and a benefit to others. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how you feel about this stuff, um, but it's challenging. And sometimes I can read through some of this stuff, and the end result for me is I don't feel super great about where I'm at. And I just realize, man, I fall short in a lot of ways. I don't know that my life would necessarily be described as loving and joyful and peaceful more often than not. I wish it would be. It's kind of, you know, it's the goal. That's what we're striving for. But I am leaning on Christ as he continues to do a work in my life because I don't want my life to be wasted. I want my life to count. But I want it to count in the ways that matter. 
which is different than how the world sees things a lot of times. And so just maybe as an encouragement, on the backside of the notes in your bulletin, there's just a list. And it's not to be a checklist, right? That's not the point. It's not to make you feel, feel bad about where you're at. And it's not even necessarily meant to make you feel good about where you're at. But it is keeping our eyes on the prize. And there's a lot of scripture, and maybe you just keep it in your Bible, maybe you put it on a, a mirror or a desk somewhere, but just to be reminded that this is not the work that you have to struggle through to do, but this is the work that God wants to do through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. A mature Christian is reading the word. A mature Christian lives the truth, being authentic. A mature Christian imitates God. A mature Christian loves God and loves others. A mature Christian seeks righteousness. A mature Christian eats pure milk, solid food. That's to say deeper truths. You'll notice in this passage it says, not always coming from someone else. If our spiritual life is completely dependent on someone else, then there's, there's, there's a problem there. There's, there's something that needs to be given attention. A mature Christian lives by the Holy Spirit, overcoming the flesh, not in a finality sense, right? Like we all sin, we all struggle with things. But do you see victory over the flesh in your life? A mature Christian has the fruit of the Spirit. The mature Christian lives in honesty. The mature Christian prays continuously. A mature Christian is a servant. A mature Christian suffers well. Dad talked about that last week. A mature Christian evangelizes. A mature Christian contends for the faith, takes a stand for what is right. A mature Christian is self-sacrificing. A mature Christian has proper speech. All of these are areas that I have failed on numerous occasions. But I know that this is what God wants to do in my life. And so let me just sort of close with this thought. As Americans, I don't know if you realize this or not. I'm sure you do. uh, We create an enormous amount of trash. Overall, the U.S. produces 268 million tons of trash annually. The average U.S. resident produces about four to five pounds per day. (laughs) Believe that? So, you know, we've got, Hall- uh, we've got Halloween's coming up. We've got Thanksgiving coming around the corner. We've got Christmas coming around the corner. What's interesting is that during the holiday season, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, we throw out even more trash, about 5 million tons more per week. And a high percentage of that trash is just, it's just waste. So, for example, if each person in America throws away, I want you to think about this in like about a month and a half, right? If each person in America throws away one bite of Thanksgiving turkey, that comes out to be about 8.1 million pounds of edible turkey in the trash can. So eat all your turkey. (laughs) If each person throws away one tablespoon of stuffing, that comes out to be about 16.1 million pounds of edible stuffing that's wasted. And then, of course, there's Christmas, and there's wrapping paper. The average U.S. consumer gift wraps 20 packages during the holidays. 
It's on average. If each person wrapped just three of those packages in the recycled paper wrap, the amount of paper that would be saved would be over 45,000 football fields. Can you believe that? New Year's just adds to the trash heap. New York, uh, the Times Square New Year's Eve uh, celebration, for example, the New York Sanitation Department cleans up 42 tons of extra garbage just from that one event. So what, what's the point? The point is this, is that waste is commonplace in our lives. And I'm not trying to make a statement about waste, like your garbage, you do whatever you want. <laughs> but I think that spiritual waste is an even bigger problem. And God's desire is that we not waste our lives, but that we produce a spiritual crop of fruit, a spiritual crop of maturity. And so let's not be careless. Let's be intentional. Let's lean in and abide and walk in fellowship so that we can produce a crop that will glorify the Father. Let me pray and then we'll close our song here. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And God, we thank you for the abundance of grace that you give us with these things. We know that we have not arrived and in many ways we have so far to go. And you, yet God, here and now, we recognize that our desire is to not be useless, to not be wasteful with what you've given us. And so God, we ask that you would do a good work in our lives. God, that you would help us to bear fruit. And so God, we know that it starts in our own hearts. May we walk with you. May we abide and remain in your word and in your fellowship and in your presence so that our lives would replicate who you are, love and joy and peace. God, may you be honored. And God, where we feel defeat, would you give us encouragement? And God, when, where we feel pride in what we're doing, would you give us reality? God, keep us balanced in our view so that we can love you well and that our lives would prove that we are your disciples. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.